The choir just sang, This is my beloved son. We express our thanks to the Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music that they provided this morning and to those who have spoken to us in this session of the conference. It will be now my pleasure to address you, and following my remarks, the session will conclude with the choir singing, We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Donald L. Hallstrom of the Presidency of the Seventy. The concluding session of the conference will begin at 2 o'clock this afternoon. My dear brothers and sisters, I express my love to you. I am humbled by the responsibility to address you, yet I am grateful for the opportunity to do so. Since last we met together in a general conference six months ago, there have been continuing signs that circumstances in the world aren't necessarily as we would wish. The global economy, which six months ago appeared to be sagging, seems to have taken a nosedive. And for many weeks now, the financial outlook has been somewhat grim. In addition, the moral footings of society continue to slip, while those who attempt to safeguard those footings are often ridiculed and at times picketed and persecuted. Wars, natural disasters, and personal misfortunes continue to occur. It would be easy to become discouraged and cynical about the future or even fearful of what might come if we allowed ourselves to dwell only on that which is wrong in the world and in our lives. Today, however, I'd like us to turn our thoughts and our attitudes away from the troubles around us and to focus instead on our blessings as members of the Church. The Apostle Paul declared, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. None of us, none of us makes it through this life without problems and challenges and sometimes tragedies and misfortunes. After all, in large part, we're here to learn and grow from such events in our lives. We know that there are times when we will suffer, when we will grieve, and when we will be saddened. However, we're told Adam fell that man might be, and men are that they might have joy. How might we have joy in our lives, despite all that we may face? Again from the scriptures, Wherefore, be of good cheer, and do not fear. For I, the Lord, am with you, and will stand by you. The history of the Church, in this the dispensation of the fullness of times, is replete with the experiences of those who struggled and yet who have remained steadfast and of good cheer as they have made the gospel of Jesus Christ the center of their lives. This attitude is what will pull us through whatever comes our way. It will not remove our troubles from us, but rather will enable us to face our challenges, to meet them head on, and to emerge 
victorious. Too numerous to mention are the examples of all the individuals who faced difficult circumstances and yet who persevered and prevailed because their faith in the gospel and in the Savior has given them the strength they needed. This morning, however, I'd like to share with you three such examples. First, from my own family, I mentioned a touching experience that has always been an inspiration to me. My paternal great-grandparents, Gibson and Cecilia Sharp Condy, lived in Clackmannan, Scotland. Their families were engaged in coal mining. They were at peace with the world, surrounded by relatives and friends, and were housed in fairly comfortable quarters in a land they loved. Then they listened to the message of the missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and to the depths of their very souls were converted. They heard the call to gather to Zion and knew they must answer that call. Sometime around 1848, they sold their possessions and prepared for the hazardous voyage across the mighty Atlantic Ocean. With five small children, they boarded a sailing vessel, all their worldly possessions in one tiny trunk. They traveled 3,000 miles across the waters, eight long, weary weeks on a treacherous sea, watching and waiting with poor food, poor water, and no help beyond the length and breadth of that small ship. In the midst of this soul-trying situation, young Nathaniel became ill. There were no doctors, no stores at which they might purchase medicine to ease his suffering. They watched, they prayed, they waited, and they wept as day by day his condition deteriorated. When his eyes were at last closed in death, their hearts were torn asunder. To add to their grief, the laws of the sea must be obeyed. Wrapped in a canvas, weighed down with iron, the little body was consigned to a watery grave. As they sailed away, only those parents knew the crushing blow dealt to wounded hearts. However, with a faith born of their deep conviction of the truth and their love of the Lord, Gibson and Cecilia held on. They were comforted by the words of the Lord, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How grateful I am for ancestors who had the faith to leave hearth and home and journey to Zion, who made sacrifices I can scarcely imagine. I thank my Heavenly Father for the example of faith, of courage, and of determination Gibson and Cecilia Sharp Condy provide for me and for all their posterity. I introduce next a gentle 
faith-filled man who epitomized the peace and joy which the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring into one's life. I've seen John Groberg in the audience. I know he'll remember this experience. Late one evening on a Pacific Isle, a small boat slipped silently to its berth at the crude pier. Two Polynesian women helped Meili Mulipola from the boat and guided him to the well-worn pathway leading to the village road. The women marveled at the bright stars which twinkled in the midnight sky. The moonlight guided them along their way. However, Meili Mulipola could not appreciate these delights of nature, the moon, the stars, the sky, for he was blind. Brother Mulipola's vision had been normal until a fateful day when, while working on a pineapple plantation, light turned suddenly to darkness and day became perpetual night. He was depressed and despondent until he learned the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life was brought into compliance with the teachings of the Church, and he once again felt hope and joy. Brother Mulipola and his loved ones have made a long voyage, having learned that one who held the priesthood of God was visiting among the islands of the Pacific. He sought a blessing, and it was my privilege, along with another, who held the Melchizedek priesthood to provide that blessing to him. As we finished, I noted that tears were streaming from his sightless eyes, coursing down his brown cheeks and tumbling finally upon his native dress. He dropped to his knees and prayed, O oh God, thou knowest I am blind. Thy servants have blessed me that my sight may return. Whether in thy wisdom I see light or whether I see darkness all the days of my life, I will be eternally grateful for the truth of thy gospel, which I now see and which provides the light of my life. He rose to his feet and, smiling, thanked us for providing the blessing. He then disappeared into the still of the night. Silently he came. Silently he departed. But his presence I shall never forget. I reflected upon the message of the Master. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. My brothers and sisters, each of us has that light in his life. We're not left to walk alone, no matter how dark our pathway. I love the words penned by M. Louise Haskins, and I quote, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand 
into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. Close quote. The setting for my final example of one who persevered and ultimately prevailed despite overwhelming difficult circumstances begins, Brother Uchtdorf, in East Prussia following World War II. In about March 1946, less than a year after the end of the war, Ezra Taft Benson, then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, accompanied by Frederick W. Babel, was assigned a special post-war tour of Europe for the express purpose of meeting with the Saints, assessing their needs, and providing assistance to them. Elder Benson and Brother Babel later recounted from a testimony they heard the experience of a Church member who found herself in an area no longer controlled by the government under which she had resided. She and her husband had lived an idyllic life in East Prussia. Then had come the Second Great World War within their lifetimes. Her beloved young husband was killed during the final days of the frightful battles in their homeland, leaving her alone to care for their four children. The occupying forces determined that the Germans in East Prussia must go to Western Germany to seek a new life and home. The woman was German, and so it was necessary for her to go. The journey was over a thousand miles, and she had no way to accomplish it but on foot. She was allowed to take only such bare necessities as she could load into her small wooden wheeled wagon. Beside her children and these meager possessions, she took with her a strong faith in God and in the gospel as revealed to the Latter-day Prophet Joseph Smith. She and the children began the journey in late summer, having neither food nor money among her few possessions she was forced to gather a daily subsistence from the fields and forests along the way. She was constantly faced with dangers from panic-stricken refugees and plundering troops. As the days turned into weeks and the weeks to months, the temperatures dropped below freezing. Each day she stumbled over the frozen ground. Her smallest child, a baby in her arms, her three other children struggled along behind her, with the oldest seven-year-old pulling the tiny wooden wagon containing their belongings. Ragged and torn burlap was wrapped around their feet, providing the only protection for them, since their shoes had long since disintegrated. Their thin, tattered jackets covered their thin, tattered clothing, providing their only protection against the cold. Soon the snows came, and the days and nights became a nightmare. In the evenings, 
she and the children will try to find some kind of shelter, a barn or a shed, and would huddle together for warmth with a few thin blankets from the wagon on top of them. She constantly struggled to force from her mind overwhelming fears that they would perish before reaching their destination. And then one morning, the unthinkable happened. As she awakened, she felt a chill in her heart. The tiny form of her three-year-old daughter was cold and still, and she realized that death had claimed the child. Though overwhelmed with grief, she knew that she must take the other children and travel on. First, however, she used the only implement she had, a tablespoon, to dig a grave in the frozen ground for her tiny, precious child. Death, however, was to be her companion again and again on the journey. Her seven-year-old son died, either from starvation or from freezing, or both. Again, her only shovel was the tablespoon, and again she dug hour after hour to lay his mortal remains gently into the earth. Next, her five-year-old son died, and again she used her tablespoon as a shovel. Her despair was all-consuming. She had only her tiny baby daughter left, and the poor thing was failing. Finally, as she was reaching the end of her journey, the baby died in her arms. The spoon was gone now, so hour after hour, she dug a grave in the frozen earth with her bare fingers. Her grief became unbearable. How could she possibly be kneeling in the snow at the graveside of her last child? She had lost her husband and all her children. She had given up her earthly goods, her home, and even her homeland. In this moment of overwhelming sorrow and complete bewilderment, she felt her heart would literally break. In despair, she contemplated how she might end her own life, as so many of her fellow countrymen were doing. How easy! It would be to jump off a nearby bridge, she thought, or to throw herself in front of an oncoming train. And then, as these thoughts assailed her, something within her said, Get down on your knees and pray. She ignored the prompting until she could resist it no longer. She knelt and prayed more fervently than she had in her entire life. Dear Heavenly Father, I do not know how I can go on. I have nothing left except my faith in Thee. I feel, Father, amidst the desolation of my soul an overwhelming gratitude for the atoning sacrifice of Thy Son, 
Jesus Christ. I cannot express adequately my love for him. I know that because he suffered and died, I shall live again with my family. That because he broke the chains of death, I shall see my children again and will have the joy of raising them. Though I do not at this moment wish to live, I will do so that we may be reunited as a family and return together to Thee. When she finally reached her destination of Karlsruhe, Germany, she was emaciated. Brother Babel said that her face was a purple-gray, her eyes red and swollen, her joints protruding. She was literally in the advanced stages of starvation. In a church meeting shortly thereafter, she bore a glorious testimony stating that of all the ailing people in her saddened land, she was one of the happiest because she knew that God lived, that Jesus is the Christ, and that He died and was resurrected so that we might live again. She testified that she knew if she continued faithful and true to the end, she would be reunited with those she had lost and would be saved in the celestial kingdom of God. From the Holy Scriptures we read, Behold the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in Him, they who have endured the crosses of the world, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, and their joy shall be full forever. I testify to you that our promised blessings are beyond measure. Though the storm clouds may gather, though the rains may pour down upon us, our knowledge of the gospel and our love for our Heavenly Father and of our Savior will comfort and sustain us and bring joy to our hearts as we walk uprightly and keep the commandments. There will be nothing in this world that can defeat us. My beloved brothers and sisters, fear not. Be of good cheer. The future is as bright as your faith. I declare that God lives and that He hears and answers our prayers. His Son, Jesus Christ, is our Savior and our Redeemer. Heaven's blessing await us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father has a plan for us, a plan of happiness. His plan is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and His Atonement. Following the teachings and example of Jesus Christ, will enable us to understand more fully our part in that plan. In the first chapter of the book of Moses, we find a short but precious statement that simply outlines God's work, namely, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In our life's journey to return and become more like our Father, we are not left alone. 
God has given us the necessary gifts to help us in our mortal experience. Spiritual gifts are blessings or abilities given by God to His children. These gifts help us navigate our lives toward eternal goals. What a comfort it is to know that there is a plan providing us with a Savior, Jesus Christ. His sacrifice makes it possible for all people who comply with His gospel teachings to be forgiven through repentance. What a comfort it is to know that help is available for us to succeed in our endeavors to return to live with our Father in heaven. And what a comfort it is to know that we are not alone sailing uncharted waters as we go through life's experiences. One gift that will help us navigate our lives is the gift He has given to all, the ability and power to choose. Our choices have the undeniable power of transforming our lives. This gift is an extraordinary sign of trusting us and simultaneously a serious personal responsibility to use it wisely. Our Father in Heaven respects our freedom to choose and will never force us to do what is right, nor will He impede us from making mediocre choices. His invitation, however, concerning this important and vital gift is clearly expressed in the Scriptures. But behold, that which is of God invited and enticing to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which invited and enticing to do good and to love God and to serve Him is inspired of God. The words to do continually depict well the standard we need to apply as we use our free agency. Choices have consequences attached which may or may not be manifested immediately after our decisions. Using the spiritual gifts we have been given is paramount in order to remain in the right course. Recently, I used a pocket-sized GPS receiver. This is an incredible device which consists of an antenna tuned to the frequencies transmitted by satellites high above the Earth, along with a screen indicating my current position on Earth. In the last few decades, these kinds of devices have become widely used for scientific purposes, map-making, land surveying, and more recently, to keep people from getting lost when driving. <laughs> Throughout history, mankind has tried to keep itself from being lost. In my home country of Portugal, for instance, during the period of the discoveries in the 15th century, navigators from Lisbon shore through seas where sail was never spread before used the best possible maps and reading of the stars in the night sky, along with advanced sailing vessels for that time to find their destination. In spite of all of this, it was not easy to ask for those navigators to sail against adverse winds, and many times they wandered endlessly before finding their way in the vast sea. In contrast, today, with this GPS receiver, I can always have simultaneous answers to questions such as, where am I? Where am I going? What's the best way to get there? And when will I get there? 
With this small device, I feel great sense of security when driving, and I trust it will take me with extraordinary precision and accuracy where I want to go. I remember one day, however, as I drove into an underground parking lot, I was introduced to a new feature of this device. A warning voice struck me, lost satellite reception. The concrete structures that surrounded me had interrupted the satellite signal and caused the device to lose connection. As I came back again into the open air, I also realized that extra time was required while the device recaptured the needed signal. We, too, have within us a GPS, allowing us to know at all times what is right and what is wrong as well as assisting us in making correct choices. We are born with the natural capacity to distinguish between right and wrong because of the light of Christ that is given to every person. This faculty is called conscience. The possession of it makes us responsible beings. Additionally, as members of the Church, we have been given the gift of the Holy Ghost to protect, comfort, and guide us. However, like other faculties, our conscience may become inert through sin or misuse. If we become desensitized from the things of God in our lives, we too lose reception of the signal needed to guide us. Keeping the commandments is the best assurance to maintain a strong signal with the divine. President Thomas S. Monson, our beloved prophet, said, our lives will depend upon the decisions which we make, for decisions determine destiny. I bear my witness that choosing good eventually leads to happiness, while wrong choices drag us down to unhappiness. Learning to choose that which is good and keeping the commandments will create a pattern that will help us to attain fulfillment in life become more like our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and qualify to inherit all the blessings promised to the faithful. Another gift that will help us navigate our lives is the capacity to believe the words of those who testify of Jesus Christ. Throughout prophets in every age, including our own, God had revealed His plan of happiness for individuals and families. Those who follow the prophets receive the blessings God has promised. We can always trust the living prophets. Their teachings reflect the word and will of the Lord. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealed His secret unto His servants, the prophets. The lyrics of a primary song admonishes us to follow the prophet, follow the prophet, don't go astray. Follow the prophet, follow the prophet, he knows the way. We can get direction all along our way if we heed the prophets, follow what they say. I testify that our Father in heaven is mindful of each one of us that He listens to and answers our prayers, that He communicates with His prophets to guide us. As we develop our faith to believe and live the words of prophets, 
we will strengthen our testimony of the plan of happiness and the central role of Jesus Christ in it through the power to choose and the inheritant capacity to believe the words of those who testify of Jesus Christ, we will be able to cross the great waters of life and reach our eternal destiny. We have been taught this weekend by prophets, seers, and revelators. I am grateful for the guidance our Father in Heaven has extended to us and for His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. I testify that they live and love us. And as we abide by the teachings we have received, we will make good choices. We will not be lost. We will reach then our eternal home. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. What a wonderful conference it has been. How blessed we are to hear the counsel of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, whom we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. I remember a warm, sunny afternoon when spring was trying to nudge its way through a long winter in Cache Valley, Utah. My father, whose Saturdays were always filled with chores for his grandsons, stopped by our house with an offer to go for a ride. Always happy to ride in Grandpa's truck, our four- and six-year-old sons scurried into the back jump seat, and I joined my father in the front. Our drive took us through the streets of downtown Logan, which wrap around the Logan Temple, prominently situated on a hill centered beautifully in the city. As we moved further away from the city, we turned from paved busy streets to seldom used dirt roads where we crossed old bridges and weaved through trees far into the country. We were far from any other traffic and all alone. Realizing his grandsons were in a place they had not been before, my father stopped the truck. Do you think we are lost? He asked the wide-eyed boys as they gazed out the windshield across the valley. Followed by a moment of silent assessment, came the profound reply of a young child. Look, he said, pointing his finger. Grandpa, you are never lost when you can see the temple. Our eyes turned, focusing with his, seeing the sun glistening off the spires of the Logan Temple far across the valley. You are never lost when you can see the temple. The temple will provide direction for you and your family in a world filled with chaos. It is an eternal guidepost which will help you from getting lost in the mist of darkness. It is the house of the Lord. It is a place where covenants are made and eternal ordinances are performed. In the Book of Mormon, King Benjamin directed the saints of his time and place to gather, every man having his tent with the door thereof towards the temple. As Church members, we have recently received counsel from modern-day prophets, which, if followed, will turn the doors of our homes more fully towards the temple. The First Presidency has invited adult members to have a current temple recommend and visit the temple more often where time and circumstance permit. 
and encourage members to replace some leisure activities with temple service. They also encouraged newer members and youth of the Church who are 12 years of age and older to live worthily to assist in this great work by serving as proxies for baptisms and confirmations. Even our young children have been encouraged to visit the temple grounds and even touch the temple. President Thomas S. Monson once counseled, As we touch the temple, the temple will touch us. We are blessed to live in a temple-building dispensation where 146 temples have been dedicated or announced. Under the definition of temple in the Bible Dictionary, we read the following. It is the most holy of any place of worship on earth, followed by this insightful statement. Only the home can compare with the temple in sacredness. For me, this suggests a sacred relationship between the temple and the home. Not only can we turn the doors of our homes to the temple or the house of the Lord, we can make our homes a house of the Lord. Recently, in a state conference, all present were invited by the speaker to take a virtual tour of their home using their spiritual eyes. I would like to invite each of you to do this also. Wherever your home may be and whatever its configuration, the application of eternal gospel principles within its walls is universal. Let's begin. Imagine that you are opening your front door and walking inside your home. What do you see and how do you feel? Is it a place of love, peace, and a refuge from the world, as is the temple? Is it clean and orderly? As you walk through the rooms of your home, do you see uplifting images which, would, which include appropriate pictures of the temple and the Savior? Is your bedroom or sleeping area a place for personal prayer? Is your gathering area or kitchen a place where food is prepared and enjoyed together, allowing uplifting conversation and family time? Are the scriptures found in a room where the family can study, pray, and learn together? Can you find your personal gospel study space? Does the music you hear or the entertainment you see, online or otherwise, offend the spirit? Is the conversation uplifting and without contention? That concludes our tour. Perhaps you, like I, found a few spots that need some home improvement. Hopefully, not an extreme home makeover. <laughs> Whether our living space is large or small, humble or extravagant, there is a place for each of these gospel priorities in each of our homes. In order to keep the temple and those who attend it sacred and worthy, the Lord has established standards through His servants, the prophets. We may be well advised to consider together in family council standards for our homes to keep them sacred and to allow them to be a house of the Lord. The admonition to establish a house of prayer, even a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God— provides divine insight in the type, into the type of home 
the Lord would have us build. Doing such begins the construction of a spiritual mansion in which we all may reside regardless of our worldly circumstance, a home filled with treasure that neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. There is a righteous unity between the temple and the home. Understanding the eternal nature of the temple will draw you to your family. Understanding the eternal nature of your family will draw you to the temple. President Howard W. Hunter stated, In the ordinances of the temple, the foundations of the eternal family are sealed in place. President Boyd K. Packer counseled, Quote, Say the word temple. Say it quietly and reverently. Say it over and over again. Temple. 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 Add the word holy. Holy temple. Say it as though it were capitalized, no matter where it appears in the sentence. Temple. One other word is equal in importance to a Latter-day Saint, home. Put the words holy temple and home together, and you have described the house of the Lord. Last year, primary children gathered thousands of them from around the world in each of their wards and branches, singing to their families and ward members as part of the primary sacrament meeting presentation. They sang of promises and preparation The things of which they sang begin in sacred homes and continue in sacred temples. I think you will hear the tune in your hearts as I read the words. I love to see the temple. I'm going there someday to feel the Holy Spirit, to listen and to pray. For the temple is the house of God, a place of love and beauty. I'll prepare myself while I am young. This is my sacred duty. I love to see the temple. I'll go inside someday. I'll covenant with my Father. I'll promise to obey. For the temple is a holy place where we are sealed together. As a child of God, I've learned this truth. A family is forever. President Boyd K. Packer stated, The ultimate purpose of all we teach is to unite parents and children in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are happy at home, sealed in an eternal marriage, linked to their generations, and assured of exaltation in the presence of our Heavenly Father. I testify to you that the application of these principles will help turn the doors of your home to the temple or the house of the Lord and allow you to more fully make your sacred home a house of the Lord. I conclude where I began with the words of an innocent child. You are never lost when you can see the temple. And I add my testimony of the sacred nature of our homes and of the Lord's temples. I know that God is our loving Heavenly Father. I bear witness of Jesus Christ and of His role as our Savior and Redeemer and of living prophets authorized to exercise all priesthood keys from Joseph Smith to Thomas S. Monson, I do so in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Shortly after I was called to serve as a stake president in 1987, I talked with a good friend who recently had been released as a stake president. During our conversation, I asked him what he would teach me about becoming an effective stake president. His answer to my question had a profound impact upon my subsequent service and ministry. My friend indicated he had been called to serve as a temple worker soon after his release. He then said, I wish I had been a temple worker before I was a stake president. If I had served in the temple before my call to serve as a stake president, I would have been a very different stake president. I was intrigued by his answer, and I asked him to explain further. He responded, I believe I was a good stake president. The programs in our stake ran well, and our statistics were above average. But serving in the temple has expanded my vision. If I were called today to serve as a stake president, my primary focus would be on worthiness to receive and honor temple covenants. I would strive to make temple preparation the center of all that we did. I would do a better job of shepherding the saints to the house of the Lord. That brief conversation with my friend helped me as a stake president to teach relentlessly about and testify of the eternal importance of temple ordinances, temple covenants, and temple worship. The deepest desire of our presidency was for every member of the stake to receive the blessings of the temple, to be worthy of and to use frequently a temple recommend. My message today focuses upon the blessings of the temple, and I pray the Holy Ghost will illuminate our minds, penetrate our hearts, and bear witness of truth to each of us. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared that in all ages, the divine purpose of gathering the people of God is to build temples so his children can receive the highest ordinances and thereby gain eternal life. This essential relationship between the principle of gathering and the building of temples is highlighted in the Book of Mormon. Behold, the field was ripe, and blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle, and did reap with your might, yea, all the day long did ye labor. And behold the number of your sheaves, and they shall be gathered into the garners that they are not wasted. The sheaves in this analogy represent newly baptized members of the Church, and the garners are the holy temples. Elder Neil A. Maxwell explained, quote, Clearly when we baptize, our eyes should gaze beyond the baptismal font to the holy temple, the great garner into which these sheaves should be gathered is the holy temple, close quote. This instruction clarifies and emphasizes the importance of sacred temple ordinances and covenants, that the sheaves may not be wasted. Yea, they shall not be beaten down by the storm at the last day. Yea, neither shall they be harrowed up by the whirlwinds. But when the storm cometh, they shall be gathered together in their place, that the storm cannot penetrate to them. Yea, neither shall they be driven with fierce winds, whithersoever the enemy listeth to carry them. 
Elder Dallin H. Oaks has explained that in renewing our baptismal covenants by partaking of the emblems of the sacrament, quote, we do not witness that we take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Rather, we witness that we are willing to do so. The fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take that sacred name upon us in the ultimate and most complete sense." Close quote. The baptismal covenant clearly contemplates a future event or events and looks forward to the temple. In modern revelations, the Lord refers to temples as houses built unto my name. In the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, the Prophet Joseph Smith petitioned the Father that thy servants may go forth from this house armed with thy power, and that thy name may be upon them. He also asked for a blessing over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. And as the Lord appeared in and accepted the Kirtland Temple as his house, he declared, for behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here, and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. These scriptures help us understand that the process of taking upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ that is commenced in the waters of baptism is continued and enlarged in the house of the Lord. As we stand in the waters of baptism, we look to the temple. As we partake of the sacrament, we look to the temple. We pledge to always remember the Savior and to keep His commandments as preparation to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and receive the highest blessings available through the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, in the ordinances of the holy temple, we more completely and fully take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. And this greater or Melchizedek priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. We live in a great day of temple building around the world, and the adversary surely is mindful of the increasing number of temples that now dot the earth. As always, the building and dedicating of these sacred structures are accompanied by opposition from enemies of the Church, as well as by ill-advised criticism from some within the Church. Such antagonism is not new. In 1861, while the Salt Lake Temple was under construction, Brigham Young encouraged the saints, quote, If you wish this temple built, go to work and do all you can. Some say, I do not like to do it, for we never began to build a temple without the bells of hell beginning to ring. I want to hear them ring again. All the tribes of hell will be on the move. But what do you think it will amount to? You have all the time seen what it has amounted to." Close quote. We as faithful saints have been strengthened by adversity 
and are the recipients of the Lord's tender mercies. We have moved forward under the promise of the Lord. I will not suffer that mine enemies shall destroy my work. Yea, I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. For many years, Sister Bednar and I hosted faithful men and women as devotional speakers at Brigham Young University, Idaho. Many of these speakers were, were emeritus or released members of the Seventy who had served as temple presidents following their service as general authorities. As we talked with these stalwart leaders, I always asked this question. What have you learned as a temple president that you wish you had better understood when you were a general authority? As I listened to their answers, I discovered a consistent theme that I would summarize as follows. I have come to better understand the protection available through our temple covenants and what it means to make an acceptable offering of temple worship. There is a difference between church-attending, tithe-paying members who occasionally rush into the temple to go through a session and those members who faithfully and consistently worship in the temple. The similarity of their answers impressed me greatly. Each response to my question focused upon the protecting power of the ordinances and covenants available in the house of the Lord. Their answers precisely par paralleled the promise contained in the dedicatory prayer offered upon the Kirtland Temple in 1836. We ask the Holy Father to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this thy house to all generations and for eternity, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people, upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. And if any people shall rise against this people, that thine anger be kindled against them. And if they shall smite this people, thou wilt smite them. Thou wilt fight for thy people as thou didst in the day of battle, that they may be delivered from the hands of all their enemies. Dear brothers and sisters, please consider these verses in light of the current raging of the adversary and what we have discussed about our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ and the blessing of protection promised to those who honorably hold a name and standing in the Holy Temple. Significantly, these covenant blessings are to all generations and for all eternity. I invite you to study repeatedly and ponder prayerfully the implications of these scriptures in your life and for your family. We should not be surprised by Satan's efforts to thwart or discredit temple worship and work. The devil despises the purity in and the power of the Lord's house. And the protection available to each of us in and through temple ordinances and covenants stands as a great obstacle to the evil designs of Lucifer. The exodus from Nauvoo in September of 1846 caused unimaginable hardship for the faithful Latter-day Saints. Many sought shelter in camps along the Mississippi River. 
When word reached Brigham Young at winter quarters about the condition of these refugees, he immediately sent a letter across the river to Council Point, encouraging the brethren to help, reminding them of the covenant made in the Nauvoo Temple. He counseled, quote, Now is the time for labor. Let the fire of the covenant which you made in the house of the Lord burn in your hearts like flame unquenchable. Close quote. Within days, wagons were rolling eastward to rescue the struggling saints. What was it that gave those early saints such strength? It was the fire of the temple covenant that burned in their hearts. It was their commitment to worship and honorably hold a name and standing in the house of the Lord. We do now and will yet face great challenges to the work of the Lord. But like the pioneers who found the place which God for them prepared, so we will fresh courage take, knowing our God will never us forsake. Today, temples dot the earth as sacred places of ordinances and covenants, of edification and of refuge from the storm. The Lord declared, I must gather together my people that the wheat may be secured in the garners to possess eternal life and be crowned with celestial glory. Within the sound of my voice are many young women, young men, and children. I plead with you to be worthy, to be steadfast, and to look forward with great anticipation to the day you will receive the ordinances and blessings of the temple. Within the sound of my voice are individuals who should have but have not yet received the ordinances of the house of the Lord. Whatever the reason, however long the delay, I invite you to begin making the spiritual preparations so you can receive the blessings available only in the holy temple. Please cast away the things in your life that stand in the way. Please seek after the things that are of eternal consequence. Within the sound of my voice are individuals who have received the ordinances of the temple and for various reasons have not returned to the house of the Lord in quite some time. Please repent, prepare, and do whatever needs to be done so you can again worship in the temple and more fully remember and honor your sacred covenants. Within the sound of my voice are many individuals who hold current temple recommends and strive worthily to use them. I commend you for your faithfulness and for your devotion. I bear solemn witness that the fire of the covenant will burn in the heart of every faithful member of this Church who shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in the Lord's holy house. Jesus the Christ is our Redeemer and Savior. He lives and he directs the affairs of his church through revelation to his anointed servants. Of these things I bear witness in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our Savior gave himself in unselfish service. He taught that each of us should follow him by denying ourselves of selfish interests in order to serve others. 
If any man will come after me, he said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. As a group, Latter-day Saints are unique in following that teaching, unique in the extent of their unselfish service. Each year, tens of thousands of Latter-day Saints submit their papers for full-time missionary service. Seniors put aside the diversions of retirement, the comforts of home, and the loving companionship of children and grandchildren and go forth to serve strangers in unfamiliar places. Young men and women put work and education on hold and make themselves available to serve wherever they are assigned. Hundreds of thousands of faithful members participate in the unselfish service we call temple work, which has no motive other than love and service for our fellow men living and dead. The same unselfish service is given by legions of officers and teachers in our stakes and wards and branches. All are uncompensated in worldly terms, but committed to Christ-like service to their fellow men. It's not easy to give up our personal priorities and desires. Many years ago, a new missionary in England was frustrated and discouraged. He wrote home saying he felt he was wasting his time. His wise father replied, Forget yourself and go to work. Young Elder Gordon B. Hinckley went to his knees and covenanted with the Lord that he would try to forget himself and lose himself in the Lord's service. Years later, as a mature servant of the Lord, Elder Hinckley would say, He who lives only unto himself withers and dies, while he who forgets himself in the service of others grows and blossoms in this life and in eternity. Last January, President Thomas S. Monson taught BYU students that their student days should include the matter of spiritual preparation, including service to others. An attitude of love characterized the mission of the Master, President Monson said. He gave sight to the blind, legs to the lame, and life to the dead. Perhaps when we face our Maker, we will not be asked, How many positions did you hold? but rather, How many people did you help? In reality, President Monson concluded, you can never love the Lord until you serve Him by serving His people. A familiar example of losing ourselves in the service of others, this one not unique to Latter-day Saints, is the sacrifice parents make for their children. Mothers suffer pain and loss of personal priorities and comforts to bear and rear each child. Fathers adjust their lives and priorities to support a family. The gap between those who are and those who are not willing to do this is widening in today's world. 
One of our family members recently overheard a young couple on an airline flight explaining that they chose to have a dog instead of children. Dogs are less trouble, they declared. Dogs don't talk back, and we never have to ground them. We rejoice that so many Latter-day Saint couples are among that unselfish group who are willing to surrender their personal priorities and serve the Lord by bearing and rearing the children our Heavenly Father sends to their care. We also rejoice in those who care for disabled family members and aged parents. None of this service asks, what's in it for me? All of it requires setting aside personal convenience for unselfish service. All of it stands in contrast to the fame, fortune, and other immediate gratification that are the worldly ways of so many in our day. Latter-day Saints are uniquely committed to sacrifice. In partaking of the sacrament each week, we witness our commitment to serve the Lord and our fellow man. In sacred temple ceremonies, we covenant to sacrifice and consecrate our time and talents for the welfare of others. Latter-day Saints are also renowned for their ability to unite in cooperative efforts. The Mormon pioneers who colonized the Inner Mountain West established our honored tradition of unselfish cooperation for the common good. Following in this tradition are our modern Helping Hands projects in many nations. In recent elections, Latter-day Saints have united with other like-minded persons in efforts to defend marriage. For some, that service has involved great sacrifice and continuing personal pain. Our members' religious faith and Church service have taught them how to work in cooperative efforts to benefit the larger community. Because of this, Latter-day Saint volunteers are in great demand in education, local government, charitable causes, and countless other efforts that call for high skills in cooperative efforts and unselfish sacrifice of time and means. Some attribute our members' willingness to sacrifice and their skills in cooperative efforts to our effective Church organization or to what skeptics mistakenly call blind obedience. Neither explanation is correct. No outside copying of our organization and no application of blind obedience could duplicate the record of this Church or the performance of its members. Our willingness to sacrifice and our skills in cooperative efforts come from our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, from the inspired teachings of our leaders, and from the commitments and covenants we knowingly make. Unfortunately, some Latter-day Saints seem to forego unselfish service to others, choosing instead to fix their priorities on the standards and values of the world. Jesus cautioned that Satan desires to sift us like wheat, which means to make us common and like all those around us. 
But Jesus taught that we who follow him should be precious and unique, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to shine forth to all men. We do not serve our Savior well if we fear man more than God. He rebuked some leaders in his restored church for seeking the praise of the world and for having their minds on the things of the earth more than on the things of the Lord. Those chastisements remind us that we are called to establish the Lord's standards, not to follow the world's. Elder John A. Widso declared, We cannot walk as other men, or talk as other men, or do as other men, for we have a different destiny, obligation, and responsibility placed upon us, and we must fit ourselves to it. That reality has current application to every trendy action, including immodest dress. As a wise friend observed, you can't be a lifesaver if you look like all the other swimmers on the beach. Those who are caught up in trying to save their lives by seeking the praise of the world are actually rejecting the Savior's teaching that the only way to save our eternal life is to love one another and lose our lives in service. C.S. Lewis explained this teaching of the Savior, quote, The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin he taught the human race. Some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy." A selfish person is more interested in pleasing man, especially himself, than in pleasing God. He looks only to his own needs and desires. He walks in his own way and after the image of his own God whose image is in the likeness of the world. Such a person becomes disconnected from the covenant promises of God and from the mortal friendship and assistance we all need in these tumultuous times. In contrast, if we love and serve one another as the Savior taught, we remain connected to our covenants and to our associates. We live in a time when sacrifice is definitely out of fashion, when the outside forces that taught our ancestors the need for unselfish cooperative service have diminished. Someone has called this the me generation, a selfish time when everyone seems to be asking, what's in it for me? Even some who should know better seem to be straining to win the praise of those who mock and scoff from the great and spacious building identified in vision as the pride of the world. The worldly aspiration of our day is to get something for nothing. 
The ancient evil of greed shows its face in the assertion of entitlement. I am entitled to this or that because of who I am, a son or a daughter, a citizen, a victim, or a member of some other group. Entitlement is generally selfish. It demands much and it gives little or nothing. Its very concept causes us to seek to elevate ourselves above those around us. This separates us from the divine, even-handed standard of reward that when anyone obtains any blessing from God, it is by obedience to the law on which that blessing is predicated. The effects of greed and entitlement are evident in the multi-million dollar bonuses of some corporate executives. But the examples are more widespread than that. Greed and ideas of entitlement have also fueled the careless and widespread borrowing and excessive consumerism behind the financial crises that threaten to engulf the world. Gambling is another example of greed and selfishness. The gambler ventures a minimum amount in the hope of a huge return that comes from taking it away from others. No matter how it is disguised, getting something for nothing is contrary to the gospel law of the harvest. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The values of the world wrongly teach that it's all about me. That corrupting attitude produces no change and no growth. It is contrary to eternal progress toward the destiny God has identified in His great plan for His children. The plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ lifts us above our selfish desires and teaches us that this life is all about what we can become. A great example of unselfish service is the late Mother Teresa of Calcutta, whose vow committed herself and her fellow workers to wholehearted, free service to the poorest of the poor. She taught that one thing will always secure heaven for us, the acts of charity and kindness with which we have filled our lives. We can do no great things, Mother Teresa maintained, only small things with great love. When this wonderful Catholic servant died, the First Presidency's message of condolence declared her life of unselfish service is an inspiration to all the world, and her acts of Christian goodness will stand as a memorial for generations to come. That is what the Savior called losing our lives in service to others. Each of us should apply that principle to our attitudes in attending church. Some say, I didn't learn anything today, or no one was friendly to me, or I was offended, or the church is not filling my needs. All those answers are self-centered and all retard spiritual growth. In contrast, a wise friend wrote, Years ago, I changed my attitude about going to church. No longer do I go to church for my sake, but to think of others. I make a point of saying hello to people who sit alone, to welcome visitors, to volunteer for an assignment. In short, I go to church each week with the intent of being active, not passive, 
and making a positive difference in people's lives. Consequently, my attendance at Church meetings is so much more enjoyable and fulfilling." End of quote. All of this illustrates the eternal principle that we are happier and more fulfilled when we act and serve for what we give, not for what we get. Our Savior teaches us to follow Him by making the sacrifices necessary to lose ourselves in unselfish service to others. If we do, He promises us eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God, the glory and joy of living in the presence of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I testify of them and of their great plan for the salvation of their children. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.